Welcome back to DC EKG, where we diagnosed Washington, D.C.'s problems, and every now and then we come up with a prescription for them. This is Joe Grogan, along with my co-host, Eric Euland. We want to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solution, led by the intrepid John C.Z. Swartaki, who's been hard at work advocating for patients on Capitol Hill. He's been testifying, uh, and he's been talking to administrative agencies as well, and uh, public forum, and he's going to be doing more of that as well moving forward. So uh, thank you, John, for supporting us and all the work you do fighting for patients and the treatments and cures that we need to uh, help Americans live better lives. So today we're joined by Mike McKenna, longtime DC hand, uh, very knowledgeable uh, dude on all things energy, but always willing to go down various rabbit holes as we find out whenever we sit down. So Eric, I'm going to turn it over to you as you introduce uh, somebody you've known. How long have you known Mike? For infinity or perhaps for court testimony, I shouldn't confess how long I've known Mike, but Mike has been in DC and focused on a lot of different policy issues for his entire professional career. He's also had time in state government and dealing with environment and energy issues in Virginia, uh, as well as service in the Department of Energy under the W administration, service in the White House under the Trump administration, and a gimlet eye on energy, environment, and politics from the outside in the private sector. So Mike, thanks so, so much for being with us today. and our sponsor, www.survivorsolutions.org. You bet, man. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the Washington problems you guys are diagnosing, so I'm, I'm glad to be here so, you know, and get diagnosed. Looking All right, well, let's, let's put you under the x-ray machine. Energy policy under the current administration and, importantly, under Democratic administrations. We've seen over 50, nearly 60 years now, Democrats come to town and every time they're in charge, try to come up with all sorts of ways of enhancing government control and reducing domestic production of our natural resources of oil, gas, coal, uh, by attempting to subsidize alternatives, whether it's the old Sinfuel Corporation of uh, late Carter era, all the way up to the current enterprise by President Biden under the Inflation Reduction Act. Why is it they have this compelling obsession with taking what's one of our best natural resources and driving the country and the economy away from, from that production? Yeah, that's actually a pretty simple answer, but nobody ever talks about it because it's not talked about in polite society. All right, let's be impolite. <laughs> but the... Um... You know, the, the, the reason why this administration and this administration is significantly to the left of the last two Democratic administrations on energy and environment. Right. Um, you know, um, Obama did what he did. He talked about a lot of things, but didn't actually accomplish a lot of things except to bust up the healthcare care um, industry in the country. Um, and Bill Clinton just talked. Right. He was he was harmless. But this crew is a little different. And, you know, it's because at the end of the day, the Democratic Party especially the donor base, is all environmental, all of them, right? You know, there the, used to be a party that had some union sentiments, that had some, some attachments to uh, middle America. That's all gone, right? They respond only to um, EV purchasers at this point, right, which is essentially identical with the, with the environmental left. 
and it's it's a it's a donor driven uh, thing, right? Trial lawyers and trial lawyers and environmentalists. That's who the party is now. But Mike, I want to ask you, like, are you saying they don't believe it? Nobody in the Biden administration believes in the policies that they're pushing. And this is merely a demand signal from the donors on the left or or what? No, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there are people who believe it. I mean, in, in every in every movement, there's people who believe it. Right. Um, but uh, adults in the room who know better, um, they're they're the ones who are who are overriding what are legitimate concerns in every direction, no matter how you look at it. Right. Every everything that they push in the energy space has got itself a, a pretty serious pathology attached to it. Um Normally, that's where adults would step in and say, we can't do that, but they are precluded from doing that by their own donor base now. That's what I'm saying. So in a world where common sense is locked out, courtesy of of these factors, and we see these policies play out, tell us a little bit about the real-life consequences that we've already seen unfold here in the past couple of years as this agenda reaches fuller flower with the Inflation Reduction Act, the Inflation Creation Act, I guess a better way of putting it, uh, regulatory activities and the like, and kind of what you see down the road here for the next few years until there's a change in administration and partisan control of the executive branch. Yeah, um, there, are, there are a couple of overriding things, right? The, the good news for Americans is that oil and gas production is mostly occurs on private land. Um, you know, because if it occur- if it occurred mostly on federal land, uh, the price of gas would be eight bucks at this point. Um, you know, the, this administration has leased the fewest acres for uh, oil and natural gas exploration and production since World War II, uh, and they have the fewest leases since World War II. Um, so it gives you some sense of how hostile they are. They've emptied out the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They um, and did they do that for an environmental reason, for a political reason? Why? And then what will happen with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the future? Uh, they did it to keep gas prices low in advance of the 2022 election is why they did it. Um, but this thing now is at a historic low yeah. and they've got to refill it at some point. They don't I have guess. to. There's no requirement to. Um, the, 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 the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and the, and the private reserves, this is arcane, right, but it, it, it's relevant. The International Energy Agency, back in the wake of the 73 oil embargo, um, recommended, put out a standard that said everybody should have six months of uh, crude oil in storage somewhere, right? Six months for their own national, national burn rate, right? Well, the thing about it is most, most, um, most of the United States' is, uh, most of the United States supply uh, reserve is on refining and in, in terminals, right? Is in ref- is in terminals on and around refineries. Um, the SPR is an adjunct to that, an important addition. Give you some idea. So there's nothing that requires them to fill it. Give you some idea of like what we're down to. We use about 20 million barrels of oil a day in this country. We're down to less than um, 350 million barrels in the SPR. So we're down around 17 days at a burn rate, right? well off six months that the IEA says we should have. I don't think they're ever going to fill it. Why would you, right? Because let's face it, we're not going to use oil and gas past 2030, right? Or 2035 or whatever fantasy date they have. Can you just rewind this? Because I've seen this on the web and I just want to get your comment on it, that you know Trump had wanted to fill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at X price. He was attacked by the left. 
and the and uh, the Democrats in Congress. It wasn't filled, or it was filled, and then just a little bit of context around selling it because oil price, or excuse me, gasoline prices had gotten too high. Yeah. So uh, I believe what the president wanted to do was fill it up to a billion barrels, right? Which is um, pretty close to its working limit, right? When back when oil was forty, forty-five dollars a barrel, right? Which made a lot of sense, right? Um, the administration would now have to fill it. Uh, I think the I think when we woke up this morning, price was at eighty bucks, eighty-two bucks, something like that, right? Um, so you know you're talking about some some real money if you're adding another 500 million barrels at, at 80 bucks whatever that is that's you know 40 billion dollars right so that's the that's the kind of delta between a, a good decision and a bad decision right about 40 billion dollars in the federal government um, you know, rounding error if you're at OMB um, so there's that and the, the 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 way the mechanism works on reducing gasoline prices is you know the oil market on this planet is a relatively tight market, right? We produce, uh, you know, on any given day, we produce 103 million barrels um, and we use 102 and a half or 103 and a half, right? And, and everything gets balanced out by supply um, terminals, right? By, by terminals that hold the crude. You inject even something as simple as, you know, 5 million barrels into that system, it punctures a hole in the price. So it's an it's a is a effective but short term mechanism, for the obvious reason that if you trade in oil and the United States announces, hey, I'm going to release three or four billion a million barrels from the SPR, you adjust yourself accordingly, right out in the out in the back months, right in the forward months. Um, so it, it it's effective, but it has limited effectiveness. It's mostly a PR thing, to be honest with you, which is why they always trumpet it with press releases. If you were really if you were really doing it to puncture a big hole in the in gas prices, you just drop it onto the market. Let Without everybody try to figure releases. it out, right? Yeah, exactly. You just, but hey, where the hell did those extra barrels come from? And everybody would be like, ah, you know. So it, it, the SPR was a bad idea when it started. It's gotten worse as it's gone along. But, but this administration has, um, has made it as bad as well, wait, I could have wait, imagined. Wait, 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 wait. So what do you mean it's a bad idea? Are you saying we don't need a reserve in order to insulate Americans from shock? I mean, we do have something of a problem going on in the oil producing region of the Middle East and the oil producing region of Eurasia right now that makes people pretty nervous and it has pushed oil prices up, correct? So if we do, if things do get worse over there and we only have 17 days of oil, um, this does not worry you. No, it doesn't Why? worry me at all. Uh, you know, because because the ultimate guarantees, the ultimate guarantors of price stability in the oil markets have been what they what they have always been. And that is production in West Texas and production in Saudi Arabia and not not um, a strategic petroleum reserve in Louisiana. So unpack that a little bit in, in a world where there wouldn't have been a spro you went through the same exercise is your thought that. We would have amped up domestic production and worked with the Saudis that they would increase their supplies. It's what we do States. in every circumstance where there's challenges to supply. It also, uh, you know, it also gives, and, and this was predictable and predicted when it was first, when it was first debated right back in the seventies. It also gives administrations that are hostile to oil a freebie. It gives them a free pass. 
You know, they don't have to explain why they're hostile to oil. They can just say, hey, we gave, you know, we, we, we took oil out of the SPR. And by the way, the Biden administration says exactly that whenever they get questioned about, about their stances on oil and gas. Totally in favor of it. We, we access the SPR. SPR is a political thing. It's not a, it's not a market thing. It's not a technological thing. It's a political thing. And it always has been. It's always going to be, which is why I publish it. So just to pick at this, pick at this a little bit more, in, in a world where you do have an aggressive philosophy of trying to restrict domestic production of oil and gas as, as much as possible, and there hadn't been a SPRO, and you didn't have an administration that behaved like administrations in the past have, have done to enhance domestic production, much less work internationally for that, what then would have been the recourse for consumers if you had a, a pretty hostile uh, president and team saying, nope? We're not going to do anything here domestically. You mean you mean in the event of some international hiccup? Yeah, right. Or what we went through the past couple of years with the price well, run up. Yeah, I mean the 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 recourse consumers would have is the same one they have even with the SPR, even with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They have to make sure they they hire administrations that aren't hostile to oil and gas. And that's the thing about it, right? All we're doing with the SPR is we're not insulating ourselves from the, the possibility of price shocks because we still get them. We're insulating ourselves. We're insulating administrations from the consequences for their stupidity. And that is, should always, you should always oppose that, whatever side you're on. There's no question that trying to protect consumers from administrative executive branch stupidity is a high priority. But you certainly made some news in opposing the SPR. So look forward to um, conversations about that. I'm not getting confirmed to anything. (laughs) But in relation to kind of where we are now, and as Joe says, we've got some international problems that show up in these oil producing regions of the world. What is it, if anything, the Biden administration is doing to open the door or slam the door shut? for oil and gas imports from these regions of the country, uh, uh, regions of the world to the country? Well, I mean, forever in the United States, the um, it's been understood that our seat on OPEC is the Saudi seat, right? That the Saudis and, and the Americans are of one mind about anything with respect to OPEC quotas, right? Um, the administration has consciously, this affects more than oil, right? Where, as we're seeing in Gaza right now, the administration has, you know, has followed, you know, it's populated with the Obama Alumni Society, so they followed what Obama did. For some reason, they've decided the Iranians are the right answer in the Middle East. That's compromised our um, relationship with the Saudi Arabians. There's no doubt I about think it. that is an incredibly fair takeaway. So is it possible that consumers over the next couple of years during this administration's tenure will once again feel price shocks when it comes to oil? Gas, natural gas. Yeah, but I think in a much narrower band than they're used to, right? Um, How so? Well, I, it's difficult for the because because American production, and keep in mind we're the number one oil and gas producer on the planet, right? Because American production is um, based significantly upon precision drilling and and hydraulic fracturing, right? It's easy to ramp. It's relatively easy to ramp up and down. And, and that's also why the Saudis um, try to uh, harmonize themselves with our thinking on these topics, right? Because they know that 
they're they're the swing producer sometimes and we're the swing producer sometimes so and truthfully when the russian oil was out there the russians were the swing producer sometimes so it's not like it's not like it was in 1973 where one country was a swing producer right any one of three countries the russians the americans the saudis um can produce enough in a short enough period of time to affect the price. But is the Russian oil now truly off the market or has it just found another outlet and a whole bunch of cutouts in order to continue production at relatively high levels? Yeah, they're, they're still producing. I want to say they're down about 20%, uh, but that's really hard to gauge because they, like you say, it's, it's, it's hidden. Um, they're selling to the, to India, they're selling to China. Um, I don't know if they could, ramp up those sales very quickly, which is why I put a question mark on whether it's still a swing producer. The, the, the real risk, and this is an important thing to know, right? The, the real risk that the um, that consumers face from the Biden administration with respect to oil and natural gas, right? Because they're associated in most cases. The administration's put a steady downward pressure on oil and gas, um, exploration, production, refining, the back end of it, right? Um, you know, methane emissions, stuff like that. My friends at the American Energy Alliance have a handy dandy list of 175 actions they've taken to suppress oil and gas production. And that, oh yeah, that started off as a bet between me and Tom Pyle that I, I, you know, I said, I bet you can't name a hundred things. He says, I bet you I can name a hundred things easy. The best 50 bucks I ever lost because the next day he dropped a document on my desk. He says, here's 104. And so we've been adding them as was going along. Anyway, um, the practical effect of all the actions taken together is they have reduced investment in oil and gas space. And that's something that's going to affect oil and gas production in this country for the next 10 years, right? Because it's all, the investment takes a, you know, takes a long time to put money together, get it to a field, develop a field, all that other stuff. So these three years have been bad, right? And the last, the last year of COVID was bad too. So it, it, it's, it's going to start showing up at some point in the future, like when we need to be a swinging producer and our capacity to do that's been diminished because of lack of investment. But the energy companies, Exxon, to name one, they, they, they're making a lot of money, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. How is it in this environment? Just explain the, a couple obvious stupid things. Um, like, how is it that when the Biden administration is putting the thumb to the energy markets and the energy producers domestically, the energy producers still have record profits and provide sound bites for certain members of the United States Senate and House of Representatives to decry the greed of the energy companies? Yeah, I mean, look, Exxon makes Exxon's whatever largest company on the planet, largest company in America. I never keep track of this stuff. Um, all these guys, and this is, I, truthfully, I love it when they say they're making record profits. I'm like, dude, you can't have it both ways, right? I mean, either these guys are, either we're transitioning away from these guys or they're making record profits, but it can't be both. And here's what it is. Exxon, Chevron, Pioneer, Hess, they all make a product that people use every day, that people like to use, that people, that, that enable people's lives. And they charge a fair price for it, as shown by the fact that people keep buying it, right? Instead of buying electric vehicles um, or other options, right? Like bikes or scooters, right? Like like Jigger Shaw over DOE wants us to buy. But the reality of it is, is that Exxon, Chevron, they got shareholders they got to pay, right? 
I mean, nobody thinks about shareholders as something you got somebody got to pay, but you got to pay your shareholders. And if you take a look at the, the, the total investment in oil and gas in the United States, it's about 50% of what it was even 10 years ago in new projects, right? Um, and that's because investors, not necessarily Exxon, Chevron, the big companies, but investors, me, you, Eric, right? They read, they read what they read in the New York Times and the LA Times, and all they hear about is, hey, we're not going to use oil and gas in 25 years. So you're hesitant to go invest yourself in a field that's going to take 10 years to pay out. And that's where the problem comes in, right? When when you say we're not going to be, we're going to be off oil in in thirty years or whatever the target is it twenty thirty is the target twenty thirty five is the target. It or? depends on who you ask. the The administration has said they want utilities to be electricity generation to be net zero by twenty thirty five, and want the entire country to be net zero by twenty fifty. Okay, and GM came out shortly after the Biden administration came to town and said, we're going to, every car we make is going to be electric. By 2035, I think, 2032, something, something like that. Yeah. And they, they started changing the badges on the Suburban to give them like electric voltage numbers instead of calling it, you know, uh, by the size and all, and the quality of the interiors and everything. Yep. Isn't it obvious that that is not going to happen at this point, that the car mandates and this energy independence thing is is ridiculous like who if you're willing is to spend belief at the beginning okay maybe we can do this we're america we put somebody on the moon at this point in the administration isn't it obvious that regardless of how much subsidies they've been dumping into the green new deal or whatever this stuff is and how much they've been putting the screws to the energy companies we still need it and those targets are going to fail yes it's obvious to everybody who knows something about energy but it's not obvious to everybody in the world at large. And some people who know something about energy are actually getting paid. They're making money on not seeing what's clearly in front of their nose. You have time for a divergence? You want me to tell you a story? Always. I was up talking to a large financial firm, about 15 of their desk traders, right? And I started off by saying, all right, who's long on energy and who's short on energy, right? Who's long oil and gas and who's short on oil and gas? And, you know, the, the vice chairman, the guy's a friend of mine, been for 30 years, right? I said, Mike, what are you thinking about uh, nowadays? I said, I think this energy transition thing is nonsense. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, and half the room, right, the guys who were all long on oil and gas were like, yes. And the other half of the guys who were short oil and gas were like, ah, oh. right? Guys are short oil and gas. They have a vested interest in not seeing things. So, but, yeah, they, every. Everybody who knows anything knows it's not going to happen, not going to happen on time, not going to look like it, right? Even even, even General Motors said literally, what, it's Friday? Even General Motors on, on Wednesday, they said, hey, we're, gonna, we're not going to transition our plants that we're making Yukons and Suburbans. We had planned on transitioning to electric vehicles in 2025 or 6. We're not going to do that. We're going to hold off on that decision for another 10 years. So... You know, they're they're creeping away from it, right? The automakers are creeping away from this stuff. So consumers definitely hammered in the pocketbook, sounds like, and big challenges to oil and gas uh, over the next decade or so. You mentioned electricity, and we know the administration has a huge agenda in this space on electrical production and the like. Talk a little bit, if you could, about the challenges there Again, the mismatch between the claimed ambition 
and the reality of how things work and how you really get electricity in homes. Um, you know, if you had a if you had to pick a part of the Inflation Reduction Act that you really should be concerned about, it's not the electric vehicle stuff because that's going to go away ultimately, right? Because it's it's a it's a province of rich kids. Um, the electricity tax credits, wind, solar, batteries, um, mm-hmm. those have no back end on them. You know, we, we treat them like they're 10 years and they're out like other tax credits. They're not. They have no back end. They can go forever. The administration clearly has in their mind a system that um, is dominated by wind and solar and um, leveled out by batteries, right? You know, the, the, um, is it possible to construct such a system? Probably not. There probably aren't enough. Forget the probably. No, there aren't enough batteries on this planet um, to, to level a system out the size of the United States. Um, where we are heading is utilities are um, responding. Utilities are, you know, highly political animals, right? Regulated utilities, regulated monopolies, you know, highly political, right? Um, they're doing the political thing, right? They're installing as much wind and solar as they can in response to sometimes state-level mandates. And then they are double-decking the system with natural gas generation behind that because it's the only way they can assure that they have a, an opportunity to um, survive weather extremes, right, and still provide electricity. And it, every year we get a little bit closer to a bad blackout in this country. Every single person that I know who talks who knows about grids – and those are those are include guys who actually run the grid believes we're heading towards some sort of cataclysmic blackout because the system now has more intermittent resources wind and solar on it than is consistent with um with reliable performance and this is not you know this is it's not just it's not just that it's unreliable right that we're heading for a blackout we've already had one right we had we had a bad one in texas three years ago killed 500 people right there was a cold snap. The gas guys didn't show up because the natural gas guys didn't show up because they hadn't been pay- paid to show up. The wind and the solar guys didn't show up. Lights went out in December. It was cold. We got 500 dead. Um, so, you know. Wait, what do you mean the gas guys didn't show up because they didn't get paid? A bunch of the gas generators didn't show up because they couldn't get gas. They couldn't get natural gas to run their generators, to, to flip their, to run their turbines. In, in gas land, um, in natural gas land, um, customers who rely on it for heating uh, get first get first dibs and and unless you unless you nominate your gas early and you go get it and, and put it under contract it's 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 a scramble when the weather gets cold to get gas ah so they didn't have the supply set up that's right and you know the thing is if if the texas regulators had said hey you know what we're going to pay a little extra for reliability we want you to go ahead and buy the gas just in case we need it they'd have wrong it's not complicated, right? It's just a matter of what you what you incentivize you get, right? Whether you're a government or a personal or person or a family or a tribe or whatever, what you incentivize you get. They didn't incentivize reliability, so they didn't get reliability. Um, so in addition to- Have they say, changed that? Have they changed no, that in Texas to no. get their act together? Is the, and, and any other state or the federal government under this administration Understood and changed now, their approach. Uh, PJM, which which is the grid operator for the um, what we typically think of as the Midwest, right? Pennsylvania, Ohio, right? That part of the world, Indiana, Michigan. Um, PJM almost had a similar experience Christmas Eve, uh, this last Christmas Eve, ten months ago. Um, they had a bunch of gas generators no show on a on a really cold night, 
and the whole system almost went blank. And, you know, if you're a great, and this is not just them, the New England system operator went up in front of FERC the other day and said, I had no assurance that I'm going to be able to keep the lights on this winter. So it's a problem. No, I was going to say for the Federal Electric Energy Regulatory Commission, is there any effort to ask the right questions and drive smart solutions in this area? Or is it just people catch as catch can, given the challenges that this administration is presenting to energy production, energy distribution, energy storage? No, it's, it's a... It's a um... It's a problem that the that the Inflation Reduction Act has exacerbated, right? Because everyone's rushing now into wind and solar and batteries to get them up, get the tax credits going. Because oddly enough, they worry that a Republican administration, Republican Congress, would reel those things back in, which they would. But the more of them, you, you know, the more of them you put on the system, the less reliable the system the system becomes. And nobody's figured out how to solve that problem, except for the obvious answer, which is. Don't put them on the system, right? Or let your grid operators determine like the speed at which they come on the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the administration has what they want at the Department of Energy, right? They have a bunch of money out of the IRA and the infrastructure thing, the infrastructure and whatever that other I, Jobs Act, something. There's no, there's an I in there. They give away money on the routine out of DOE for grid modernization and that kind of stuff. It's it's pennies. It doesn't make any difference, but it's a nice press release. I would have thought that Texas, though, of all places, would have figured out how to have a reliable grid. How is it that Texas, who's making, excuse me, producing all this petroleum product, doesn't say, okay, job number one is to make sure that our grid is solid and the the solar stuff is a nice add-on? Am I what am I missing? When Rick Perry was governor, he spent whatever it was, $5 billion to make this thing called CRAS. I can't remember what it stands for, but it's it was a basically a big, great big giant transmission project moving wind power from the turbines in West Texas to the population centers in East Texas, right? East Texas, Central Texas. A lot of money tangled up in, the, in that wind power. A lot of money tangled up. And, you know, Texas is no different than any other place. Um, if you have a pathology, you always got to look at who's making money and, you know, you always find somebody's making money off the pathology. And like I said, Texas is no different than any other place. And that's Hawaii too. Is that, is that accurate that the recent fires out there were due to some extent due to the grid not being updated because they weren't investing in the. That's totally accurate. They, um, uh, what, what the, the. Order of operations in, in Hawaii had been that they had plantation land that had gone um, not native, but um, but gone to scrub, and the the um, and utilities you know routinely clear out brush because they have to because you know anything that touches the line is going to light on fire right so um, it's expensive it it it, cut, it takes time and costs money but you got to do it and what appeared to have happened in in Maui is they didn't do it. They were busy with something else. In all fairness, California wildfires, same same circumstance, right? You know, the utilities got too busy or too too distracted with other stuff to just do the blocking and tackling what you're paying them for. So looking at things domestically, obviously we've got a lot of challenges. Uh, but looking at things internationally, and we touched a little bit on this earlier, 
terms of production. But as countries kind of continue to evolve, especially in the world situation where we've had a longstanding challenge with Venezuela, obviously Russia has a unique point of view, Iran, uh, a multi-decade difficulty there. China with, uh, you know, building multiple coal-fired coal power plants every week uh, and now serving evidently as uh, part of the Russia sanction, it's okay, sort of coalition. Uh, Saudi Arabia, which is now taking a bit of a different perspective about the United States, Iran, and, and Russia and China than it has in the past. What kind of, as you watch all this, what's kind of your forecast over the next several years about the challenges we're going to face internationally? When yeah, it comes to I, I think there are, um, I think there's probably three. Um, you know, China owns, uh, controls, or processes 80% of the rare earth minerals that are necessary for batteries, for us to build the batteries that we're require, you know, we require in the energy transition. Um, there's no way we're not coming into more conflict with the Chinese. That's just, you know, I, I, I'd like to sugarcoat that, but I, I can't, so I'm not going to. This administration is really split on this. You know, half of them are China hawks and the other half are China doves. And at least with respect to alternative energy, you got to be clear in your head. If you're a China hawk, you can't be you can't be OK with batteries. Right. You just can't be and solar panels for that matter either. Um, so we're going to have to have that conversation at some point. Um, you know, the funny thing is we're probably not going to have any lots of problems over oil just because the, the world, you know, the technology is now so good to get oil out of the ground that the world is, I don't want to say a wash in oil. We got a bunch of it and we got a bunch of it. Um, you know, so this peak oil theory of 30 years ago is been <laughs> so, just proved by facts. So the right? international energy agency, um, the International Energy Agency put that nonsense out this week. Again, they put their latest. They they said, ah, we thought the peak was in 2020 or 2021. Now we think the peak's going to be 2026. So I called a friend, I called a friend of mine up at X. I'm like, hey, what you're calling the peak? He's like, we don't really have a call. He says it's like 20, somewhere in the 2040s, we think it's going to start to plateau out. I'm like, so never? He says, yes, so never. I'm like, okay. Um, it... it <laughs> It, you know, back to Joe's point, right? Everybody who knows anything about this kind of looks at it like, you're kidding me, right? It's a put on. Um, I, I, I am concerned about one thing about, about, about it's going to be about energy and it shouldn't be about energy, but it's going to be about energy. And that is this, this, this Russian coalition of the, I'm okay with Russia, um, includes India. And to my mind, the big strategic, um, challenge thing we got to do, however you want to think about it in the next 15 years is to make sure the Indians don't wobble out of our orbit. And this, and why is that? Uh, because they're the world's largest speaking democracy, largest English speaking democracy, largest democracy, largest English speaking country. And they don't like the Chinese almost as much as we don't like the Chinese, um, you know, in, in a, in a, in a contest for, hearts and minds uh, between us and uh, how the Chinese imagine the future is going to unfold. We're not going to win it unless the Indians are on our side, I don't think. So that's interesting. So 
as an aside, I might say that Indians dislike the Chinese even more. I mean, they've gone to war with them. Uh, you know, they've had battles with them along that border a few times. And granted, <clears throat> we've had go time in, in the Korean conflict, but um, and they share a border with them. But how would you keep them out of the Russian Chinese orbit in so far as energy is concerned? Like Russia clearly outflanked us in this somehow what and they're selling discounted oil to the indians right so how would we how do we get india back uh in our yeah. orbit I, as it relates I, to energy it would make me feel a lot better I, I don't i don't know the answer to that question in all its particulars but i do know it would make me feel a lot better is if instead of shipping lng to europe right most of the LNG that we're selling now is going to Europe um, in, in lieu of South Asia, right? The South Asians are essentially getting outbid for that gas by the Europeans. It would make me feel a lot better if we just said, you know what? We're going to start shipping it out to, to our friends in South Asia, right? Do we need a terminal on the West Coast? I mean, wasn't this a big discussion? I mean, I'm trying to go back through my memory, but... Weren't there discussions of putting some pipelines to allow for better exports out of the West Coast, California, Washington State, and that was killed. And so, so and right now we export it out of New Orleans. Louisiana right? in various configurations, yes. Some, some in Houston, right? Some go through the ship channel. Yeah, look, we have, I'll make it simple for you. We have literally no major energy facility west of Interstate 5 in this country. If that makes you, if that, you know, if we have an earthquake, forget, forget India for a second. I know we're talking about India, but forget India for a second. We have an earthquake out in the West Coast. We're not going to be able to do anything. We're going to be able to do anything to help them. Wait, what do you mean? Okay, you, you say this, but what does that mean? Okay, you have a terrible earthquake in California. Look, let's put it this way. We have no native ability to, like, generate power west of I-5. We have no native ability. And I'm not saying they wouldn't be knocked offline, but, you know, not everything would be knocked offline. We have no native capacity to generate electricity, to refine gasoline, to do any of that stuff with the exception of the Chevron refinery in um, San Francisco, right? Waste of San Francisco, yeah. So you it's it's a problem. You talk to anybody out on the West Coast who's serious about it, they'll be like, you know, if something happens out here, you know, we're going to have Navy ships having to come into our ports forever and ever because we just have no capacity to self-correct self, um, or self-help at this point. So, so the Indian thing, right? You, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking, if you want to get serious about tying yourself to India a little closer, yeah, you should get yourself an LNG facility on the West Coast. Makes sense. Even if it's just Mexico, something on the Pacific Ocean, right? And that was killed. Oh, I thought there was one in the world. No, is that, is that stupid? No, you're not stupid. There's been a multi-year fight about a facility in the, the far northern, northwestern tip of Oregon, south uh, southwestern tip of uh, Washington State. That was wiped out by local yeah, Jordan opposition. Cove, right, Jordan Cove? And, right. Yep. Yeah. And uh, since then, it's been a few years now, there's been no discussion up and down the West Coast about an export facility. Instead... There is this constant controversy about whether or not to shut down nuclear in Southern California um, and complaints about what is transshipped for energy, especially in California, through various ports. Crazy. Huh. Do you follow the uh, you interested in nuclear, too, Mike? One of my first jobs at the Department of Energy was on the nuclear side. So, heck, yeah. 
so what is Vivek talking about when he says by the end of his first term that what is what's his claim there's going to be four or five Gen 4 nuclear reactors in the approved in the United States? And what does that mean? And how would you I mean, we've been talking about nuclear being the the solution on the right to our energy, clean energy problems. Right. That is what we have to do. And we've seen. Am I wrong? Very little innovation, very few nuclear facilities coming online. He imagines a world in which, okay, first off, we have a bunch of new generation reactors, right? Small modular reactors. The the big problem in utility space is, you know, up till now, reactors have been a thousand megawatts. And that's great. But the problem is in the last 20 years, utility planning tends to prefer give me give me 300 megawatts or give me 200 megawatts give me a gas fired plant that's small right that i can turn on and off quickly that kind of thing so the nuclear world's like okay we'll give you some you know we'll size it correctly right cuz you know we we've got everything from from reactors small enough to run um, you know nuclear submarines all the way up to you know 1500 megawatts we can we can scale so they came up with smaller modular reactors small can be as small as 60 megawatts right you can put them in a in a line and you know Hey, we install 300, we install five of these units, right? Um, technologically, there's no problem with it. Simple. Um, government-wise, there's a huge problem with it, right? The NRC is wading its way through um, design approval. And that's before we even, you know, we, we have no, there's no plant order sitting out there for an SMO, for a small modular reactors, right? Um, there's a there's a pilot project that's been talked about up in Idaho where where the government would would host um, host a reservation where they'd have three or four of the small modular reactors yoked together up at uh, Idaho National Laboratory. That may get off the ground, but the real problem is he's not going to be able to get the NRC to cough up designs uh, design approvals in the next five years. That's just not going to happen. So a question about Vivek Ramaswamy's approach on this which sounds really interesting and, and invigorating. We've got a nuclear Navy that is wrapped around multiple nuclear reactors and a whole yeah. bunch of vessels above and below the water. They seem to be able to do this relatively yeah. quickly. Why on the civilian side does it take decades to even begin to try to punch through the process, much less ultimately build a plant and bring it online? Yeah, the, the, the difference is not the technology and it's not the guys doing the technology because in the civilian world, you know, everybody in the civilian world in, in nuclear technology is a former nuclear Navy guy, right? They're all the same guys. They go to the same schools, they have the same resumes. No, the problem is nuclear Navy doesn't get, um, doesn't get permitted out by the NRC. They don't have oversight by the NRC. The civilian guys do. But they've got to have a focus on safety, reliability, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. ease of production. You know, a lot of the same things yes. that the regulatory commission. So why is the regulatory commission so beclogged? And in the military, it's not. Oh well, that I mean that. Okay, the first part of that. The first part of that question is easy. These, these, these. The good thing about these guys all being the same is, is that they all did learn in the nuclear navy where the tolerances are, you know, essentially zero. Right? You have no room for a mistake. When you're, when you're out there underwater or over water, you know, reactor, you know, the fact that we've, the fact that we're now what, 60 years into this thing and have had one accident involving a nuclear submarine that probably didn't have to do with the reactor. Um, you know, 
they're out there every day doing the right thing. It's a testament, right? Um, no, the, the reason why the, the problem is, is that the NRC is full of people who don't want nuclear power. So that doesn't seem to make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Wait, I'm losing it. I'm losing it over this. So the regulatory commission is stacked with people who don't want to approve nuclear energy. That's your thesis. They don't believe in the technology. I don't. Oh, I don't know whether they believe in the technology. They just have no intention of, of letting anybody build a plant if they can avoid it. And, and, you know, if you ask if you ask anybody from the regulated community without asking them to use their names, they'd say the same thing. I mean, it. So it what would you do? I mean, it sounds like the place if, if that thesis is correct, it it and it exists only to say no. If Vivek is going to realize his dream and he says, uh, I want you to be my secretary of energy, Mr. McKenna, or my special assistant for energy policy or my assistant to the president for energy policy. What is what do you do to get nuclear reactors approved? Yeah, you'd have to abolish the NRC first. That's that's pretty straightforward. So it's a hell of a thing when you create an agency to approve something that's dedicated to making sure it never gets approved. But in a world where you zap the NRC, what do you replace it with? You replace with what it should have been originally, right? Originally, the theory was, you know, that they were going to have a a council, a commission to regulate nuclear weapons and a single regulator to regulate nuclear safety, right? Instead, they instead we have wound up with a single general at the Pentagon in charge of nuclear weapons, and we have wound up with a commission in charge of civilian nuclear safety. It's crazy. You know, we're in the middle. We're in the middle of this fight right now. Uh, uh, one of the commissioners, one of the Democratic commissioners from the NRC, is up for is up for renomination right now. Even the Democrats are are, are giving him the, the the squinty eyes, right? Because he he got a lifetime. He's got a lifetime of of hey, I'm not really sure about this, right? So that's the kind of that's that's the kind of commissioner you're getting from 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 the administration, right? So you've had this evolution in technology. We've got this regulatory agency. You've got an alternative kind of in your head where we balance safety with efficiency and approval. The technology is advanced. The public support is high. And yet it is clear that as a result of a whole bunch of factors, you just can't get these designs through, much less things up and running. We talked at the beginning of the conversation about how markets react to this is as a result of the NRC's obstinance and refusal uh, a, a contingent reality as well that the marketplace investors and the like look at all this and they're like, yeah, those are great designs. Yes, they can be safe. Yes, the public is supportive, but why am I going to put money out to try to help in a world where I doubt we can ever get regulatory approval or it will take 20 or 30 years? Yeah, there's some of that, right? It, 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 there's a generalized sense that, hey, you know, if, if they're serious about this energy transition, it has to be partially driven by nuclear. So eventually that thing's going to that's going to pay off. But, you know, you look at the you look at the history of of um, cost overruns and schedule overruns and you know, it doesn't matter what the company is. Right. Which tells you that it's probably the regulator. Right. Um, you you. There's zero doubt in my mind that the NRC is retarding this entire operation. Zero doubt. Zero doubt in my mind. You know what? Forget, forget, forget my mind. You talk to you talk to likely investors. They say the same thing. You talk to guys in the business. They say the same thing. You talk to former commissioners at the NRC, and they say the same thing. 
Well, and the former head of Greenpeace, who now says the time for yeah. nuclear has long past arrived, given his concern yeah. about yeah. the environment. So just to be clear, your alternative still focuses on safety, still ensures that we're not approving dangerous designs, but discards all the impediments to progress and ultimately siding of safe nuclear power around the country. Of course. I mean, keep in mind, keep in mind here, the, 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 the builders and owners of nuclear plants are more interested in their safety than anybody else. You know, the, the, you know, the terrible lesson of Three Mile Island where, you know, there's, there was no safety consequences of Three Mile Island, right? That, that were, that were, anybody could identify from the noise. But the reality of Three Mile Island is that, you know, a, a a mistake turned a $2 billion asset into a billion dollar liability in a matter of about 90 minutes. You know, that's something no owner wants, right? So they have maximum incentives to, to make sure stuff like that doesn't happen. Totally get it. Eulon, do you have a last question or we, should we, should we shut uh, McKenna down? <laughs> no, I always have questions for Mike. And I think Mike, if you're willing to come back on, we're going to have a lot more we want to ask. Oh, for goodness sake. Are you kidding me? All right, dude, we'll get you back. For DCEKG, I'm Eric Ulan. Our sponsor, SurvivorsForSolutions.org. Our executive producer, John Swartaki. Our production partner, Riverside Studio, along with Big Week Media, and our distribution partner, Evergreen. We thank John Swartaki. Uh, I'm Eric Ulan, along with Joe Grogan. We encourage you to click, listen, and follow DCEKG anywhere legitimate podcasts are found. For DCEKG, Thanks for listening. We'll be talking.